This morning, as I said, we're going to begin a new series. And because of that, we're going to read the scripture at the end of the service. Pastor Jason is going to close out this service by reading 1 Peter chapter 1. So in that regard, the children, if you're here this morning, you can go now. You don't have to wait till then to leave, okay? And pray for them as they go. Let me, let me make an announcement and then we'll get into what we're going to talk about this morning. I meant to do this in prayer time and forgot. But um, in just a couple of weeks, we'll transition some Sunday school classes. We have three elective classes, adult classes that take place. Um, and those are going to make some changes there at that point. Let me, let me tell you what's going to be offered in those classes. And you can think about where you might want to land in that um, the first class that will happen, my class, is going to be, I'm going to do a class on marriage and relationships. It, it isn't strictly for married couples in the sense that uh, I think it, it is about our hearts and how our hearts play into marriage and, and other relationships. There will be marriage things talked about in that, but it's not predominantly just, you know, for somebody starting out as a newlywed. It's for all of life um, in the sense of of marriage all of the years, and also maybe some who are not yet married. Um, it'd be a, it would be a good place for young adults if, if you are, want to just learn about relationships because it's talking, the way it will be done is looking at the heart, how the heart, what goes on in our hearts is, is what plays out in our marriages. And so that will be the perspective we'll go from in that. And then a second class that I'm really excited about is... Uh, is a new class that Pastor Dan is going to be teaching and uh, you'd be invited to come again, a young adult or anybody, to that class. It's, it's on declaring God's glory to the nations. It's a class on stoking a heart for missions, for declaring His glory to the nations. I would really encourage you to, to think about locating in that class and, and for the summer. Just, just see different places that God is working in our world and get your worldview expanded and so that will be offered in fact there's a, a bit of a of a, a kind of uniqueness about that class and the fact that we are out of room we, we don't have a big enough place for that class to happen and so you're going to meet in the balcony uh, you'll meet up in the balcony on Sunday mornings and there'll be some video part of that which will be the front end of that class so as people may start to come into the sanctuary that part will be finished up in the last few minutes but you'll meet in the balcony and then Dave Palmer who has been teaching for a, a number of quarters now, is, is going to continue on in church history. He's, he's done a segment of church history. Now this is kind of church history segment two. And uh, of all the things I've just shared, I, I'd like to be able to go to that class. I, I, if I were to do over my education, I'm pretty confident that what I would major in would be church history. I, I think one of the things that the church does not have a very good handle on is its connectedness. And church history helps you to see the connectedness. It helps you to see the sovereignty of God and how He has worked and preserved His church through the centuries. And so I would encourage you, any of those would be wonderful options. If you're not yet in a class, it would be a good time to test the waters for that, uh, to, to be a part. What, what I'm finding is that people who are able to connect at that level in our fellowship, it, it just helps 
you to get to know people in, in broader ways. And so if you're new to us and not been in a class, I would encourage you to, to be a part of one of those three. We'll have an insert in the bulletin next week that will give you some more information about that. And then the following Sunday, we'll launch those classes. So you can be thinking about that. This morning, as I said, we're going to begin my new series. I'm going to introduce it to you on First Peter. And in fact, it's not just going to be me who shares in these these 17 weeks. It will last, Lord willing, 17 weeks. Probably won't have any snowstorms. So it's, we're fairly safe in that regard, but we don't know all the future. But the next 17 weeks, um, we will be preaching from First Peter. And when I say we, I mean we. Um, predominantly, I will take most of those Sundays, but in the summer there's some Sundays when I need to be gone and not, not in the pulpit. And so on those particular weeks, either Pastor Jason or Pastor Dan will just take that text and, and preach on in the series. So the series will continue all through the summer. And I mean, I'm excited about it. It's my first opportunity to preach um, predominantly something that Peter has written. I've never preached out of one of the epistles of Peter. I've preached other things about Peter and around things Peter has said, but never all the way through one of the books that he has, um, he has written. And so that will be a new experience for me, maybe a new experience for you to hear from First Peter. Um, we know a lot about Peter. Um, he was a he was a colorful individual in Scripture, in the sense of just, you know, one of the things I thought about it would have been interesting, ladies, to be married to Peter. I think you start to think about his life. He was married. He he, he was married um, in in all the time that he was encountering and as a disciple in those areas. He was one of the inner three, really, around Jesus. He, he was that kind of inner circle among the disciples that often was a part of Jesus' ministry when the others weren't. Uh, he was a fisherman, and he traveled and left everything to follow Christ. Uh, he was the one who got out of the boat, remember, and for a while did okay and then began to sink. Uh, he was the one who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, he was asked, along with that triad, of, of men, Peter, James, and John, to go to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And he experienced that. He also experienced Jesus more intimately than the other disciples in the garden. He watched as Jesus wept. He also said, I will never leave you or forsake you. If everybody else goes, I'm in. I won't leave you, Jesus. And then, on that night, denied Jesus three times. And after the third denial, his Peter, his eyes and Jesus' eyes locked together. And the scripture says, Peter wept bitterly as he went out. Three days later, he probably heard some of the most precious words he had ever heard. When three times Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And finally, the third time, says Peter, you, or Peter declared, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus restored Peter. Three times he denied him. Three times he affirmed him. Those must have been precious moments for Peter. It's interesting, if you back up a little bit, when... when uh, Jesus rose from the dead. At one point, he said, go tell the disciples and Peter. That was in that three-day interlude between his denial and his restoration. And then 50 days 
after that restoration, full of the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches to 3,000 or several thousand and 3,000 people come to Christ, come to embrace the Messiah. And finally, he dies a martyr's death in Rome. And in fact, as he's writing First Peter, he is in Rome. In, in this book, you will, hear the, you will read the word Babylon, and that's a reference to Rome. That's where Peter was at as he wrote First Peter. He's the one. Now, as you look at First Peter, take the text if you have it. Uh, turn, turn to chapter 5. And this is really the reason that Peter wrote First Peter. He gives us, oftentimes a book will just state it directly. And in this book, it's stated directly why he wrote First Peter. And there he says, um, at the end of it, uh, he, he writes to, uh, to Silas here. That's, that's the name for Silas. A faithful brother as I regard him in verse 12. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The reason he wrote this book was to declare the true grace of God and then to admonish the people that he was writing to of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, to stand firm in what he has told them. It is the truth. That's really what he's saying. This is the truth. You can trust it. I'm an apostle. Stand firm in it. That's what he's saying. That's what he means there in that text. And that's why he wrote this book. His audience, as we've already said, was an audience in Asia Minor, in, uh, in some regions of Asia Minor. If you look at verse 1 there, it says Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those were regions that he was writing to, regions of, of modern-day Turkey, and probably the order that they're in is the order in which this letter now, that you understand this was a letter, this was the order in which this letter would be read to those different regions as the person and the messenger took them around to the regions. In those particular regions, those, those people who received this letter, who received what Peter was saying, who heard the word stand firm in it, um, were, were probably a mix of Jews and Gentiles. Um, there's, there's been some difference of opinion exactly who Peter was writing to, whether they were all Jews or whether they were all Gentiles. Um, most modern-day commentators today think it was predominantly Gentiles probably who got this message, um, partly because of, of chapter 1 and verse 18, if you want to look there quickly, references like this. Uh, he's, he's talking to them and he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Well, probably that's a reference to Gentiles. The feudal ways of the Gentiles there is part of the reason they think it was probably predominantly Gentiles. But there were probably Jews mixed into that whole mix as well. And uh, they're not quite certain how they... they uh, um, they got there, how they got to modern-day Turkey, how they got to Asia Minor, how these Christians were in these particular regions. Nobody quite knows exactly. There's lots of theories of how these Christians got to where they were at. Some believe that Peter actually might have early on ministered in these areas. We don't hear a lot about Peter. Um, you know, we hear a lot about Paul. There's not much talk about Peter in the Scripture. 
And so we don't know totally every place Peter went. It's possible he went to these areas early and then this is written now 30 years later. Really, 30 years after, um, not necessarily after when Peter was there, but 30 years after the resurrection. So get the perspective of that. That's when this book was written. About, about 30 years into this experience of Christianity is when this book was probably penned. Some think it might have been Roman colonization that, that the Roman government just sent people there and be, the pe- some of the people that got sent were Christians who got in that mix and colonized these areas. Um, some believe that some of these people might have been at Pentecost and just traveled back home. And so the gospel went there. It's amazing uh, to theorize some of that stuff. Nobody really knows for sure. There's lots of different theories. But it's amazing how God sovereignly just moves his people places. The fact that you're where you're at right now is because of the sovereign hand of God. It's not an accident that you're where you're at. It's not an accident that these people were in these regions. It's, it's amazing how the church has spread around the globe from, uh, from Jerusalem, from Bethlehem, from those areas. God sovereignly moves his people. As I said, it was 30 years after the ascension, after the resurrection, that probably this was written. Nobody knows again exactly the date, but there's, there's some thought that it was, it was certainly before the, the real persecution of Nero in Rome when he started to crucify the Christians, when he started to really come after them and the persecution started to really get pretty intense. And in fact, that persecution eventually took the life of Peter who was crucified, crucified as tradition tells us upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the same way that his Lord had been crucified. So that gives you a little bit of a picture, a little bit of the picture of, of, of the people, of who it was written to but a little deeper into why it was written. Uh, It was written to those people, but there was something specifically kind of going on there. That's why I've chosen to go into this series, to to go where we're at this summer and talk about 1 Peter. I think think there's some real application between what Peter wrote to them and hearing it here today where we live in in this part of the country, in this country. Um, They were suffering hardship, Certainly, as I said, the persecution was starting to fire up around Nero. It was getting pretty intense and certainly other places there was persecution. They were feeling both physical persecution, psychological persecution for naming the name of Christ. There was social ostracism, certainly, and exclusion that was happening. Um, we will read word, words that give us that indication that they were, they were just feeling the pressure of of having the name of Christ and bearing the name of Christ. Um, They were feeling a pull. Some of them were feeling a pull of their old pagan way of life. I mean, part of that pressure was causing that pull to to start to pull some of them back into areas which they had come out of. Um, The surrounding seductive non-Christian worldview was all around them. and, And some were... Being or had the potential of being picked off by that. Uh, there was tension and inconsistent behavior within the fellowship itself. Not only were they having trouble from the outside, but then from the inside, Satan was working in relationships. Isn't, isn't that, that's, that's always apropos right there. I mean, that, that is from generation to generation. Doesn't matter what country you live in. Um, 
groups of believers get together and 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 they have hearts that that continue to have to deal with what's going on inside of them, even as believers, even as hearts that have been redeemed. Stuff can stir up in hearts. And so that's what was happening there. From the outside, from the inside, stuff was happening in their own hearts. And they were dealing with that. And, and Peter's addressing that. They were having spiritual doubts. They were beginning to doubt. See, now, get the picture. 30 years. It's not just first generation here now. Now there's children of first generation believers. Second generation believers. And... And they're starting to have spiritual doubts about the reliability, about God's promises and the future. I mean, you know, time had gone on. Christ hadn't returned. Life was progressing and doubts began to settle into them. That's application, doesn't it? And then certainly just the constant... Um, Deadly prowling of Satan himself. It's, he's addressed specifically in the scripture to resist him. Satan's work, his temptations, his trials. So all of that is swirling in these people that Peter addresses. And I believe now, I've already said this, but I believe we can learn much from this. I think it has much application to us. I see many parallels between what Peter writes to them and the things they were struggling with with the modern church today. I think, and, and I think we would, would agree, there's an increasingly hostile culture to the message of the gospel today. Now, I, I want to be careful um, I think there's a hostile culture to the biblical Christianity. And I and today often I will use that term when I talk about Christianity. I say biblical Christianity. What I mean by that, you've heard me say this, I say it again, I lay it as a foundation, and that it's this statement that there are not three atoms in Scripture. There are only two. There are only two atoms talked about in Scripture. The first atom which is Adam himself in the garden, and a second Adam, which is Christ. Now, if you hold to the fact that there are only two Adams, when I say biblical Christianity, that's what I'm talking about. What, what Scripture says about that. Um, let me read just a little bit to you about... Um, about what, what it says in, in Scripture about those particular atoms. Listen, listen to what I mean. I want to talk about two atoms. It says in, in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and the death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It talks about one man. But the free gift, now in verse 15 says, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. There's only two Adams. The first Adam, Adam. The second Adam, Christ. The first Adam failed. He was tested and he failed. The second Adam was tested and he succeeded and became the Savior of men. Period. As far as biblical Christianity is concerned, now, I, I say that to say, and I've said it often, um, 
you can believe that there are multiple roads to heaven. Um, you can believe that they're all over the place and they all get to the same place. That, you're free to believe that. I mean, part of the right definition of tolerance is people, we ought to be tolerant to let people believe. I mean, we don't take a club and say, if you don't do it my way, I'm going to hit you over the head. I mean, that's a right definition of tolerant. We need to be tolerant. People can believe that. People can believe that. Where I draw the line is, I, I don't have any bones about that. Or I have bones about it if you want to put a label of Christianity on it. If you're going to call it Christianity, then we're going to have a discussion. And particularly if you're going to call it biblical Christianity, we're going to have a real discussion. Because you can believe it. And that's fine. I may dis- I certainly disagree, but that's fine. The, the point is, the Bible does not teach that. So call it something else. You can believe it with all your heart and think and believe it with all your heart will make it happen. You can can do all kinds of gymnastics with other ways. Just don't put the label of Christianity on it because that's not what Jesus taught. It's not what Peter taught. That's part of what we're going to look at. That's not what Peter taught. He did not teach there were multiple ways. He did not teach there was a third Adam. A third way. And the second way, Christ, Jesus Christ, is one of the ways. If you want to get on His bandwagon, go for it. You see, that's the point at which our culture today really, really runs into us. It's the point, I think, of where Peter's culture, the culture he was writing to in Asia Minor, all of these regions, you know, the, 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 plura, uh, the, uh, the pluralism was there as it is here. Pluralism by there's lots of ways and, and all kinds of things. The thing that caused the problem for these people in Asia Minor and I think causes the issue in the church today and, and as we see it today is, is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Is, is if you believe that, that's what will get you in trouble with people. That's what will cause people to, to rise up when you say that Jesus is the only Savior. Now again, you don't have to do that. You can buy the culture that says pluralism should win the day. And again, we can interact with people who say that. But if they call it Christianity, then we have to stop and say that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus taught. That's not what Peter taught. That's not what he said to the church in Asia Minor. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to turn. I want, I want to show you that. Turn to Acts chapter 2. You see a picture now. I, this is what I want to do. And then we're going to, going to hear the Scripture from Peter. But if you... Um, if you begin to look at the book of Acts, chapter 2, and, and through chapter 4, this, this, is, this is right after Pentecost. This is right after um, the Holy Spirit has come. The, the, the church has been waiting. The Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. 
God. And, and Jesus fulfilled his promise. If I go away, I will send another, the Comforter. The Holy Spirit will come. So the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2. And then we have Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Just let me read some excerpts from chapter 2 on through chapter 4. And see if Peter declares there's a third Adam. That pluralism is the, is the, the message of the day. Is the message of Christianity. In verse 22 it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in the midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. And then if you go over, after he speaks a little longer, he says in verse 38, to these people, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Alluding to Christ being the issue, Jesus Christ being the focus. Again, in chapter 3, he declares, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, Possible. I mean, we haven't heard enough here. It's possible that Jesus can forgive sins, but maybe the, maybe Peter thought there was somebody else who could forgive sins also. I mean, he does say Jesus forgives sins. That does not exclude the fact that Peter might have thought there was somebody else. He was just one way of multitudes. Until you come into chapter 4. Until you get the revelation here where it says in, in chapter 4, this is the setting that starts to happen. And they were speaking to the people and the priests and the captain of the temple, and that's Peter and the, and the disciples. And the, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. I mean, the resurrection was, was a powerful thing for Peter. He, again, he had witnessed it. This was no theory for him. He had witnessed the resurrection, direct witness of the resurrection of Christ. But, but you see what's happening. There's increasing hostility coming to the message that he's declaring. And then we get down, as you come down into verse 10, these words. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that, this is Peter, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you. You're talking about the man that had been healed. Before you well. And then he says this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, you can't get it any plainer than that. You can disagree with that. My point is, you can disagree with that statement. But you cannot say Christianity teaches a third Adam. It doesn't. Again and again in Scripture, biblical Christianity teaches there is one Savior and His name is Jesus. So by the very nature of naming yourself to be a Christian... You are affirming what that means. And you see, my contention is that, that that is the point at which people start to get stirred up. 
those kinds of claims, the claims of Jesus. And so then, we want to look at that because I think that's the same thing that's happening in our culture. And I think it is going to happen more. It is going to get, it is going to get more and more intense. Um, it's incredibly important, people, that we understand. I, we understand how to live in this, in this culture. There is a rising hostility to that claim that Jesus is the name under heaven by which all men must be saved. It's going to get more hostile if we hold to that. And it's important. This is important stuff. I say this, I say this, and I, and I think it will make sense. Christianity is not about whether at Christmas time we say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. That is not the battle to be fought. In fact, that's, that's kind of a silly battle in my opinion. And we get diverted over to, to battles like that and, and we get the hair raised on the back of our head and all kinds of goofy stuff starts to happening. The, the, the battle, I mean, in, in some ways Satan will let you fight that battle. The battle where the real battle is is when you name the name of Christ as the only name by which men must be saved. That is the point. That is the point. That's the hostility. And so we need to be careful what battles we fight. It it goes to what we'll talk about. Will the church stand? And that's the biggest thing. Will the church stand? Will they waffle? Will they waffle? When, when the hostility rises about that, will we start to water it down? And in some cases, people are starting to water it down. The exclusivity of Christ, some who have held to that, have given in at that front. So will we stand? But secondly, how best to do it? How best to do it? I mean, sometimes we can think we're standing and it, it's just merely fighting a Merry Christmas or Happy Holiday battle over here. What does it mean to really stand on that? What does it mean? What does it mean? That's what I hope as we get into First Peter. Some of those kinds of things. It'll, it'll help us to see how Peter, how he, he said to them, he, he admonished them, How? How? How to stand? How to hold on to this true grace? You see, what he said, this is the true grace. That's what Peter said. This is the true grace. Stand firm in it. This is the truth. Hold on to it. And then he gives them advice of how to hold on to it. Now, there's foolish ways to do it. Peter was about those early on. Remember? In the garden took out his sword and he sliced off a guy's ear. That was not the way to do it. Jesus restored the man's ear. That was not the way to do it. And my fear is we, we stand, but we stand foolishly sometimes. We don't stand as we should. And so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful as we continue to dig into First Peter, we'll get a bigger and a better picture of how to stand. There's no, no question we need to stand. But how to do that? 
how to stand in the midst of that growing hostility that is rising up around us. So it's there where we're going to go. But now what I want you to do is I just want you to listen. I just want you to listen to the Apostle Peter. This is the one who was an eyewitness to the resurrection. This is the one that we've recounted the life of who was crucified ultimately upside down. This is the one who then is writing 30 years later to the church. The words of the Apostle. This is the word of true grace, he says. This is the word of God to you. That's the authority that the apostles had. Listen to chapter 1. And as we close that chapter, stand and we're going to sing together that I will glory in my Redeemer. Listen to the word of God. you're following along this morning in one of the Bibles in the pew there, it's page 1014, 1014. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were severing not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Stand and sing. I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitterness and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. The Lamb who is my righteousness. I will call you in my Redeemer, my life bought. My body knows I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in Him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, His faithfulness, my standing place. Don't force Almighty and rush upon me. My feet are firm held by His grace. My feet are firm held by His grace. I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagles' wings. He crowns my life with loving his triumphs on our ever seen. 
His face forever to behold. His face forever to behold. Listen to Peter again as you go. This Redeemer, this Jesus, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Father, help us. Help us to glory in our Redeemer. Help us to know what it is to stand firm in that. In Jesus' name we pray.